Welcome to Le Jeu de la Tête, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is French, the language what they speak in Monaco, I'm told, uh, for it costs the eyes in your head, basically the equivalent of costing an arm and a leg, because we're in Monaco. Uh, I'm Drew Scanlon, joining me, uh, Rob Zagney. How are you, Rob? Uh, a little alarmed as I look at our document and I wonder, what happened to the love of my life? Mariana. Uh, well, you're, you're skipping ahead a little, Rob. Um, yeah. But Danny's not here. Danny is uh, on assignment, but we will we will do our best to uh, bring his Irish energy without him. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome. And if you are new to Formula One itself, we recommend listening to our preseason primer episode, uh, which assumes no prior F1 knowledge from you and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you'd like to go and do that, that's episode 137. Also, the show is supported entirely by our audience at patreon.com slash shift F1, where every month we release bonus ob- uh, bonus podcasts. <laughs> I almost said bonus objects. Um, and videos exclusively for our patrons, covering racing documentaries uh, and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series, and a lot of weird things. We're the bonus objects, Rob. Um, As we but should if you would be. like to support the show... <laughs> you can get access to all that fun stuff over at patreon.com slash shift F1 or click the link in the show notes. This month, we will have our third and final episode about uh, Drive to Survive Season 3, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, speaking of those uh, beautiful patrons, the loves of our lives, all of them, um, we have our title sponsors to thank for the show. Will Rumpf, Reagan, Jason Kelly, Jason Chadwick. Uh, it's there are let's see three O's, two Y's and one S in uh, in my document here. So that's why I have to say that I'm legally obligated. Uh, Umberto Roca, Bailey Foot, Abdullah Alfani, Sam G, Greg Salt, Circuit Demon, Oh Yes Food, Drew Stewart, Jack Ben, Connor McManners, and BPM, or as we all know, it stands for Beloved Pastor Maldonado. Shoutouts to a real one. uh today however we will be discussing the upcoming monaco grand prix the aforementioned um but before that we have a little bit of news starting with uh some calendar changes we had mentioned uh that canada the canadian grand prix was canceled due to covid and that turkey um had stepped in to host a grand prix but now the british government has seen fit to add Turkey to its red list, which means uh, that's a list of countries that require returning citizens to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks before they re-enter the UK. Uh, And since most teams have bases in the UK, that's not going to work. So Turkey is hereby canceled. Um, I am so pissed. Like, like, first of all, admittedly, we don't know if... Last year, some pretty singular circumstances, right? You had a combination of a really, like, a green track that was green in a way that we do not see in F1. Like, it was a new track surface, and then it was wet and cold. Um, And so, admittedly, that is as close as we will probably ever get to Chairman Bernie's uh, why don't we just put sprinklers on the track idea. Um, uh-huh. And it made, for, stars on ice. <laughs> it made for a wild race, and I enjoyed it a lot. I was curious what this year uh, would bring. I guess I am a little bit um, like, 
some of the stuff I read about this is like it was just kind of a weird political designation to designate Turkey on the red list. Um, I'm not sure how much of an outlier in terms of a COVID outbreak Turkey is right now. Hmm. Um, but like it, it definitely um, like some of the early commentary I saw was a little skeptical that this particular designation was as about public health as it was about like just kind of the politics of uh, the UK and like borders right now. Um, so like if this, if, if, if we lost Turkey to, to Boris's uh, like, like special, like quarantine uh, I'm going to be, I'm really annoyed. Uh, well, well don't worry, Rob, because um, even though canceling Turkey created a three week gap, uh, we moved France up a week, so you won't have to wait as long to see uh, Paul Ricard on your on your TV. Um, Thank God. But to replace the lost race, um, to still account for 23 races this season, we are adding a second race in Austria. So France moved up the one, and then another Austria was put in that vacated slot. So now we'll go France, Austria, Austria uh, in a triple header. Which I don't know. The, those two races in Austria last year were pretty cool too. Yeah, Austria's quietly emerged to be one of the strongest circuits on the track. I think the combination of really variable conditions you can get in the summer up in the mountains uh, makes it interesting. And yeah, like I, I feel like the rap every year is well, it's kind of a small circuit. Um, you know, who knows how good the racing will be? And then reliably, uh, it's it's pretty fun. So yeah, I can't I can't cry over that spilled milk. Yes. Um, Roman Grosjean, if you recall, was offered a, a test in a Mercedes car. Um, I think it was just a, a token of goodwill from team principal Toto Wolf saying like, hey, you know, you weren't able to get in the car after your accident in Bahrain to finish out the season. So, you know, as a, as a nice send off, we'll give you a test in a championship winning Mercedes. Um, he was due, Grosjean, uh, to do two test runs. Uh, around the time of the French Grand Prix, one demo run during the French GP weekend, and then a proper test on June 29th. Uh, the new French GP date conflicts with an IndyCar race, so he won't be doing the demo, but he will still get the full test on June 29th. So um, that's that's good news. I feel like it seems so weird. Like the like, I understand for younger driver drivers, these tests are really meaningful because like to a degree it does show like hey here's it, it sort of normalizes performance assessment right like okay well you do these times in this car what do you do uh in this car um i do find it a little bit of a telling sign about where f1 is right now where like the valedictory thing you get to do in your career is like go on champ why don't you hop in a mercedes and drive it around and pretend <laughs> it's yours um like it's 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 just very funny uh to me he Groshan had a, a really good beyond the grid episode um which is f1's official podcast um that is a great where it's podcast. just like a, it's great it's like one-on-one -on -one interviews and you just get and this searching sort of like it's i don't know what kind of groundwork they lay before those but like they seem to have real rapport and like the drivers and technic like people are really open and honest on that podcast in a way that like catches me off guard yeah um we'll, we'll put a link to that in uh in the show notes um 
but he Grosjean was talking about the test and he said it will be like the first time that he's driven an F1 car without any pressure. Because you think about when you first get in one as a, you know, a rookie and you're testing it, you're just trying not to screw up. Um, every practice session, you're you're doing something like you're you're gathering data or pushing the car in certain ways. Uh, and then in qualifying in the race, there's a lot of stress. So this will be the first time that he's been able to drive an F1 car and just have fun because, you know, it's a test, but he's not, you know, he's not trying to gather data. He's just going out there uh, and driving a car. So I think I think that'll be um, that'll be cool. Yeah, it's uh, um I I do want to just say like in relation to testing and things like that. Um there was an interesting interesting interview with Nikita Mazepin in Autosport talking about his experience at Haas right now. And it kind of fills in the what does the testing mean for the guys making the transition into Formula 1 from like Formula 2. Um and one of the things that does come up is Mazepin is somebody who maybe because he's kind of a rich boy, uh, got access to like a uh, older Mercedes for a preseason test um, and did quite well in it. But those options don't exist uh, as, as part of Haas. And so uh, it's however you feel about Mazepin, this interview is worth checking out because he's Mazepin's kind of taking over Grosjean's old spot and Already, it's kind of an issue for Mazepin, where it's like, this is a really tricky car to drive. And, like, he fully owns in that. He has not covered himself in glory so far. But, like, it's just a really interesting look at, hey, here's the workaday life of being an incoming Formula One driver at a team like Haas. And um, it does kind of... You can sort of understand why it might seem like a really welcome vacation for a guy like Roman to just get to go drive a Mercedes and not a <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, continuing on the Grosjean train, however, um, and this is where, where I'll add the IndyCar spoiler tag. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about the race that happened this weekend. And if you want to skip that, we'll have a time code in the show notes so you can uh, know when to skip ahead. Um, Roman Grosjean, in his third race, got pole position at an IndyCar race, um, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, the, the car, by the way, he, he races for Dale Coyne Racing, <clears throat> and admittedly, I have not watched IndyCar for the last, um, you know, three or four years, uh, but their last win was 2018, so it's not like he's with one of these teams that wins all the time. So the fact that he got pole position in his third race, I think, just speaks to, um, you know, in no small part, uh, how good of a driver he is. Um, he also did a, a really good job in the race himself. Um, he, you know, F1 doesn't do a lot of rolling starts and IndyCar does. Uh, and he led the field like that um, and kept ahead of everybody. Uh, he even had a restart after a yellow flag. Um that he also performed uh, well at. It seems to me like this is probably one of the most enjoyable times I've had watching IndyCar, maybe because of the fact that, you know, I had somebody to, to really, really root for. Um, and th that made it exciting. Uh, I mean, the commercials are still abysmal um, in the, in the IndyCar broadcast, but um, I, I had a lot of fun watching it. 
Uh, did you catch any of it, Rob? No, I missed it. Um, I didn't know that it was happening until people in F1 Twitter were losing their minds over Roman uh, doing so mm-hmm. well. And so at that point, I was like, yeah, I kind of know the results. Um, but it sounds like it was a good race. It was. Yeah, he I'm not sure exactly um, what happened uh, to. So he ended up second um, to Renus VK, uh, a uh, another um, this is a hit. This was his first win as well. Um, I think Roshan struggled a little bit on the, the harder tires when he came out of the pits. Um, you know, tires, of course, across motorsport are so, kind of the trickiest things to nail down. Actually, like, I, did you have this feeling too? Um, maybe we talked about this last time I watched IndyCar a couple weeks ago, but like, I feel like the way the tires come up to optimal performance in IndyCar is so much slower and trickier than an F1. Like, in IndyCar, it seems so? like they're talking about well, those those tires are still pretty fresh. He's only been out for a couple laps. They're really not at performance yet. Whereas like IndyCar, like F1, it feels like two sectors in the tire, that, that sort of warming up the tires phase is done. And it feels mm-hmm. like IndyCar, in ways that I think are good for racing, when you're on fresh rubber, you have a longer window of vulnerability. And it just seems like managing that whole like tire changeover is a little harder than it is in uh, F1. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, That Beyond the Grid episode actually talks a lot about the difference between F1 and IndyCar. Uh, Grosjean does, and it's really illuminating. It sounds like um, driving an IndyCar is is like driving a huge go-kart in that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of downforce and there's no power steering. So you're just muscling that thing around the track. Uh, You know, you you can follow real closely because they got more body work. Um, it, it, he just sounds like he's having a blast. So um, kudos to him. There's also a great photograph from uh, Grace Hollers at the Indianapolis Star of Grosjean, uh, Grosjean's hand holding his second place trophy. And you can see the the scarring from his burns on his hand. It's an amazing photo. And I will post that in the show notes Do, uh, as well. That photo, I think it's easy. You see him walk out of that fireball. And then you see him all wrapped up in the hospital. It's easy to think like, Man, it you know, it was scary, but it wasn't that bad. And then you see like the the burn scar tissue on his hand and you're like, holy shit. Like that was an incredibly serious incident and like left some lingering medical issues. Um, And it's kind of amazing how well he's recovered. But like that photograph was a um, I think it made it more real for me in terms of like, Oh yeah, no, like this is what Roman went through. Like following the part where, you know, we all moved on from the story. This is what he had to carry forward and like fight through to get back to this position. Yeah. Yeah. Kudos to Grosjean. Cool guy. Love to see him doing well. And I watching him race. Uh, it, it seemed like this to me, at least th- this was not a fluke that his time will come. So, um, I'm, I'm very excited for him. That's, uh, I'll just say this. Uh, that's really exciting because, like, IndyCar does seem like it has a real rookie season phenomenon where, like, um, well, VK himself was, like, has been kind of tapped for a little while. It's like, he's going to be a great driver. And it seems like that is finally coming true. But all these dudes, Patricio Award, uh, VK, um, Colton Herta, all these dudes, like, had moments where people were like, yeah, this guy's going to be incredible. 
And then they kind of go silent for a year. Like, it's still a long, a steep learning curve to get in that fighting trim. And if Groshan's already there, man, I don't know. Maybe that will change how we look at his time at Haas, where we realize, like, oh, uh, he was a very fine driver uh, holding together a real piece of shit. Yeah. Um, speaking of which. <laughs> speaking of pieces of shit. Uh, so... One of the things that's been in the air around F1, uh, like in this gap between Monaco and Spain, has been, and we've been talking about this since the start of the year, um, the 2022 spec design is coming, and teams are on a budget now, uh, not just in terms of like resources that they actually have they can allocate, but like in terms of money uh, you can allocate per year. And so it is kind of fish or cut bait time for a lot of these teams and their ongoing car development. And uh, a lot of teams are basically rolling out in the, in, at least they claim they're in the process of rolling out their last upgrades uh, for the season. Um, Haas is on record as saying that, you know, basically the, uh, the 2021 car is a wrap that they can't, um, that, that they've had to move on to focusing to 2022. Haas, I would say, was on record as being more aggressive about this at the start of the year. Like, Steiner has been very open about the fact that they just need to get onto a new spec. They need to basically uh, move on from this from this design. And so he basically went into the season saying, like, it's a it's a wash. Um we're we're going to be focusing on on the next on the next generation. Uh, that is also uh, going to be the case at Ferrari as well. Even though Ferrari is way more competitive than they thought, they were sort of asked like, "Well, you're in you're in a better place in the in the uh, championship than we expected. Um, you know, are you going to be moved to fight it out a little bit more in 2021?" And uh, their sporting director uh, said that. No, they're not. Uh, 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 Mike said, uh, this is very clear to us. We're focused on 2022. The fact that the field is tight, that you may need a few hundredths or a few tenths to switch from sixth to third will not change our strategy. The focus is on next year. Um, and that's going to be interesting because McLaren actually is on record as saying that they're still in the process of rolling out more upgrades and they are not quite calling time on uh, 2021 development. So I think we're going to see an interesting dynamic here over the course of the season where like the thing to remember is, and we, we've talked about this, Drew, there's a lot of money on the table in terms of where you finish in the championship standings. Yeah. And so there is a weird incentive of like, on the one hand, you want to go into this next generation with a much better design, like you want to put resources toward the 2022 car. On the other hand, if you can leapfrog your nearest rival or your two nearest rivals this year, boy, that's a lot of money to just grab with both hands and run. Uh, and so, especially up there at the front of the field, yeah, you know, the difference between fourth and third is much larger than the difference between you know ninth and tenth or whatever. Right, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see, one, if these teams stick to that as the season unfolds, because I think you're going to have some that see an incentive, like McLaren clearly clearly do, of saying that we are going to continually try to uh, up, upgrade in the car. Um, and then you've got Ferrari 
drawing a line under it. Uh, Williams has also basically said they're they're drawing a, a line under that. Uh, Dave, Dave Robson, uh, their head of performance, basically said they're in the same place as Ferrari. All their wind tunnel time is the 2022 car. Uh, the tw- the 2021 car is basically a wrap. Now, the other part of this is how much of this is brinksmanship. You know, there's a huge, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we're like 95% done. That 5% could include a lot, right? Like, if you just show up with a new wing, that could be a huge thing. So, like, to a yeah. degree, a lot of these teams have incentives to basically lie about what their intentions are. Uh, but at the same time, this negotiation between like weighing the present and the money on the table here versus the next generation of F1 car, that's going to be a real tension as we move into this next middle stage of the season. I can't wait to see those new cars. They're going to look so weird. Oh, they, like it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for them. Speaking of innovative developments, Rob, yeah, uh, so one of the things that uh, I think this has mostly come, you know, in that weird uh, Wiley Coyote Roadrunner relationship that Mercedes <laughs> and uh, Red Bull sometimes have. Um, so Mercedes raised concerns about the Red Bull rear wing uh, after the Spanish GP. Uh Lewis said that Max's wing looked bendy. Now, if this all sounds familiar, that's because this is a recurring issue in F1. The wings, as you would expect, do have a lot of flexion on them. And as you increase speed and the aerodynamic like load on the wing increases, the wing can morph uh, from that load and basically adopt a new performance profile and maybe sometimes exceed uh, exceed the technical specifications for what a wing theoretically should be allowed to do. Because the wings are allowed to flex. They are allowed to, you know, it's a dynamic component that, that does do different things under different circumstances. So there's a bit of, you know, begging your pardon, wiggle room uh, in these in these roles. Right, but is it really closely defined and gated, right? They can't just do whatever. Like you're not you're not doing the, um, you know, the F-14 Tomcat thing of sweeping your wings back at high speed or anything. No, though. I mean, there's discussion about like the next generation after like maybe Mm -hmm. in the future you will have like pop out wings and and things like that uh, as they try to make these cars more efficient. Um, But yeah, like ideally you you have these these limits uh, and the, the FIA has adopted a variety of tests um, to try and address this problem of the fact that of, of wing flexion. And so they will like put the wings under like weights uh, and, and see how much, how much uh, flex uh, you know, you, you see, but this is just, it's an ongoing issue in F1. It will probably never be a solved problem because there will like the, the definition of, uh, the way of, like open wheel cars are built with their wings is that there will always be something you can play around with, uh, with flexion and uh, the Autosport had a really great piece with a lot of really good diagrams about the history of the way different teams uh, have sort of played around 
with flexible wings and it's got great illustrations from um a a racing illustrator they work with a lot uh Giorgio uh, Piola um but they're really great diagrams of the way different parts of the wing move it does sound like Mercedes may have a little bit of a case and the FIA are going to be taking steps to uh, look into the the flexible the the, the wing flexion. Uh, to be crystal clear, nobody is alleging that any rules were broken. Uh, the Red Bull wings were cleared by the FIA, um, but as we as we know, these things are often renegotiated after the fact uh, once other teams can present their case about what they feel should be allowed uh, under the rules. So that's that's what we've got in play. All right. Speaking of playing, let's talk about our playground this weekend, the Monaco Circuit. Take us through this hallowed ground, Rob Zachney. Yeah, playground, but maybe not for race cars uh, and certainly not (laughs) modern F1 cars. So uh, this is one of the oldest tracks on the circuit. It's probably, you know, you'll hear the term like crown jewel thrown around a lot. Part of that is because uh, Monte Carlo still has this like air of glamour, uh, you know, at- attached to it. Teams roll out historically have rolled out their most special hospitality suites uh, for this one. <laughs> like, like Monaco is kind of F1 spring break and it's a very serious race. It is a race. A lot of drivers want to win. Uh, there's a lot of prestige attached to it. But one of the major thing, like Monaco is kind of a race that's famous for being famous, uh, is is the way I would put it. Um, it hasn't actually changed all that much in its history. Um, so it is a uh, very tight and winding course uh, along the uh, along the Monte Carlo Harbor. Um, probably the major changes that have happened. Uh, <laughs> this tells you a lot about the the terroir of this track. Probably the biggest changes that have ever happened to Monaco came in sector three when they had to basically bump the track out to make room for a swimming pool uh, that was going in at one of the hotels Uh, because that is, that is Monaco. That is, that is Monte Carlo. Um, It is, I have mellowed on it a little bit as it really is a fascinatingly tricky uh course to drive um you know it it starts uh with there there are no real proper straights on it there's a lot of flat out sections but this is not a track where you were ever just like pointing the wheel straight and like letting fly um you know you you go through a very fast right hander at sandevote and then you have probably the longest flat section um basically running up the hill through this series of like gentle uh, not even quite switchbacks. It's just very gentle S's uh, along Beau Rivage. And then you end up making a fast corner uh, into the casino uh, section, um, which starts bringing you rapidly downhill uh, toward the harbor, culminating in one of the most infamous hairpins in F1, the Grand Hotel hairpin. Famous, of course... For the fact that this is the place where Michael Schumacher accidentally stalled his car uh, in qualifying once and red flagged a session so that, like, nobody could best his time. Uh, <laughs> this is a track where you can do that. Like, the, the track doesn't fit in several places. You can't make two cars really go around. 
um, especially with how long these cars are. So the uh, the hair the the Grand Hotel hairpin um, is just a brutally hard, uh, like practically a one eighty uh, turn as you as you go down this hill. Um, I, uh, I, I saw a video for, uh, that Mercedes, um, posted on their YouTube channel that I'll link in the show notes. They, they have, uh, they're talking with Botas about Monaco and how difficult it is to, to drive around it. And like, what I found really interesting is like, they talk about everything that a driver is doing on their steering wheel around a lap. And it's just, it's so much harder in Monaco. Cause like you said, they don't have any downtime, but that corner specifically, not only are they, um, turning their wheel more than 180 degrees, and they actually say that they they put special guards um, on the bottom of the wheel for Monaco so that uh, they don't hit the driver's knees and accidentally bump a switch. Um, but that the car is going, it's the slowest corner on the F1 calendar, and the car is in first gear, which is pretty rare, near idle speed. So it is practi- they are practically like completely off the throttle for that and cranking their wheel over. Um, really cool video and just kind of goes through, yeah, how, how unique Monaco is. Yeah, it's um, and like they run special aero kits uh, for this track uh, as well um, it, because like there are this is at the far end of the tolerances uh, for, for what these cars are asked to do in terms of like tight corners. Um so you get through the Grand Hotel Chicane and you make a quick right and you are you have a brief glimpse of the Mediterranean uh, as you swing down and make another right into the tunnel. Um, the tunnel is a very fast section. Uh, one of the major changes that didn't change course layout, but it used to be you'd come out of the tunnel and basically there's a very thin guardrail between you and the harbor. Um People literally would go into the harbor uh, if, if things went bad. Check out our Patreon episode where we, where we talk about uh, Grand Prix, uh, the John Frankenheimer Formula One movie. If you want to get a taste mm-hmm. of like what racing Monaco used to be like when they basically didn't put up. There were no Tesco, uh, te- Tesco, Hesco uh, barriers. <laughs> um, and you basically just had these cars running along like sidewalk uh, and just city streets. Um, really scary, really dangerous. Uh, you come into this fast section and you have a real show-stopping uh, Nouvelle Chicane. It's a very hard left and then a hard right um, that dumps a lot of the speed off. It is very easy to get wrong. You'll see a lot of people cut this chicane, um, but you will have to like you will have to give that position back. Like they tend to look dimly on anyone uh, trying to sort of like um, get a little edge through that chicane. And then you're into uh, like, you know, probably one of the tightest and most harrowing sections of the track. It's very fast. Um, You go through the pool complex that is now basically like almost like a long bus stop uh, where you make a quick left, short straight, hard right, and then hard left. Uh, as you head down to La, La Res Cass, which is another really, um, it feels like a hairpin, but it's like kind of two corners that you're heading into. Um, and then you come back out on the curving start finish straight. The thing I would emphasize, there's no runoff here. And so every single lap feels like, almost the Death Star trench run 
it just in terms of mm-hmm. like blinding speed, zero margin for error. And that last sector uh, that we were just sort of describing, um, the fast line through it often has very little clearance between your huge wide-bodied car and its wheels and these walls. Um, and so it is just a it is a circuit that really demands what feels like millimeter uh, perfection. And what is it? It's a 78 lap uh, track. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's real short. Yeah. So, but you have to do that. You have to do that 78 times. And each one is like demands pole lap perfection uh, because you just don't have any of the forgiveness uh, that you have at any other modern F1 track. Like, I don't think if they made, like Monaco couldn't get a clearance to race. I think if it emerged today as a venue, right? Uh, it's grandfathered in. Yeah, and I think um, that makes for really, I don't know. Knowing that stuff makes it interesting to watch from that perspective. The race itself is often pretty processional. Yeah, um, which I think, I mean, I still like because again, the pageantry of Monaco and the history, and like that's cool. I think though, um, the fact that this is like the that they treat it like you know the Super Bowl or the Masters or whatever um, is a detriment to Formula One because if someone is curious about F One, you tune into well, I've heard of the Monaco Grand Prix, and then if if you're a newbie and you tune into that, you're going to be bored out of your brain. Yeah, it's and that's the thing. It's a it's like a famous and glamorous track, but I, yeah, it probably should be de-emphasized in terms of this being the pinnacle F one of F one because it really isn't. It's a it's a it's a skill check. It's a, it's a level the drivers yeah. have to negotiate. Um, but it's it tends to not be a great race, and this this is borne out by the fact that like if you look for the last few years in terms of like uh, qualifying. Uh, classification and then race classification um there's a lot of like one-to-one like crossover like how people qualify has a lot to do with how they finish particularly near the front now when we do see some changes uh like i think uh like they didn't run last year the the event was canceled and we got that tragic um leclerc video um where they were trying to do uh, oh, the rendezvous um, video, yeah, the rendezvous, yeah, oh, bleak. Uh, but they didn't run it in 2020 because uh, <laughs> also of, Patreon content. Yeah, <laughs> if you'd like to see our reactions to that, if you just want to see uh, the good vibes of rendezvous turn to ash in our mouth as we watch uh, <laughs> the the Ferrari made uh, one they did in Monte Carlo, uh, check that out. But yeah, like I think. You know, in, in previous years, like, let's see, I think 2016 probably was the most famous, like, contested uh, Monaco the last few years. And that hinged on a botched Daniel Ricciardo pit stop. Like, that's mm-hmm. that's what that came down to. Um, and so that tends to be how things unfold here since nobody can get past each other. The action tends to be when somebody finally gets out of the way and stops holding up traffic. Can somebody who was behind them build up a safe delta uh in order so that when they stop they can they can jump them um that tends to be how how the action happens at monaco uh because i want to say the last time i remember a vivid um like a really daring uh passing attempt 
was a very young Max Verstappen in 2015, um, basically trying to get it done um, and like going into the barriers, basically, because uh, he couldn't. Was it get at it the around. chicane? Just out of the tunnel? Uh, I feel like a lot of people off. try it there, and a lot of crashes happen there. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Um, no, he did it at Sandoval. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, he uh, he was trying to go too fast. He wasn't really making that much of an attempt, but he's trying to go too fast around Sandoval uh, and got it up on the curb. And basically, uh, you know, you see, you know, it's a tank slapper. Uh, the entire car breaks away, and the momentum just carries it outside. So like. That was Max trying to find the limits, uh, as he often was in his earlier years in F1. And he learned you basically can't do that at Monaco. And uh, that's that, that is the lesson of Monaco. Don't race. <laughs> Get, have a good pace. Don't race. Uh, well, let's try to predict the future here then um, with weather for Monaco. It looks to be uh, very nice. Qualifying time, uh, well, let's see, in the low 60s Fahrenheit or uh, 16 to 17 Celsius on qualifying day, and about the same for race day. Uh, Precipitation, also pretty low, virtually zero on qualifying day, um, and also very low, but climbing to later in the day, so... I don't know. You might get some sprinkles toward the end of the race. We shall see. Um, wind also not really a factor. Although qualifying day looks like uh, out of the what is that? Uh, some direction, thirteen miles an hour, or uh, twenty-one kilometers an hour. Uh, but there's so many buildings around. I'm not sure that the wind will have much of an effect. Yeah, I don't um, think yeah, you get those urban vortex effects in Monte Carlo. I don't think it's like it's not like Chicago or New York that way, where you have like these huge channels of high rises. Yeah. Um, let's take a look at the driver standings heading into Monaco. Lewis Hamilton is on top with 94 points. Max Verstappen just behind with 80. Then a gap down to Valtteri Bottas in third with 47. Lando Norris in fourth with 41, and Charles Leclerc in fifth with 40. Uh, Perez has 32, Ricardo's got 24, Sainz has 20, Esteban Ocon has 10, and Pierre Gasly's in 10th place with 8, followed by a tie between Lance Stroll and Fala- uh, Fernando Alonso with 5. Uh, Yuki Tsunoda is in 13th with 2, and behind him, Raikkonen, Giovinazzi, Vettel, Russell, Schumacher, Latifi, and Mazepin all have 0. In the constructor standings, Mercedes is on top with 141, followed by Red Bull with 112. McLaren in third third place has 65, followed closely by Ferrari with 60. Then down to Alpine in fifth with 15 points. Alpha Tauri has 10. Aston Martin has five. And behind them, Alfa Romeo, Williams, and Haas have zero. Let's take it to some emails. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so via shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or on our website, uh, f1.cool slash emails. This first one comes in from patron Drew Stewart, who says, Hey guys, living on the West Coast, as I know at least one of you can relate. Uh, Yes, me and Danny. Uh, I'm rarely able to watch the races live. Sometimes I can hold out until the kids are asleep to watch it, but sometimes I just want to watch a race recap. 
Do you have a recommended one? I've been watching them from the F1 YouTube channel, but it's more like a highlights than a recap. Uh, any other suggestions on places to find a good recap? I'm four races into my F1 watching career and loving having you guys as my guide. Thanks in advance. Uh, awesome. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Um. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was going to say the F1 YouTube channel, but you're right. They kind of it's kind of like, here's the cool stuff that happened. You don't really get a sense as to what how the race unfolded or, you know, what was what the narrative was necessarily. Um, I don't know of any video highlights that are, yes. I guess, available in the U.S. I think Sky probably does a lot of uh, a lot more of that because they have some deal. Um, but I imagine F1 is pretty, uh, you know, tight with their video content. They're not just going to allow any other YouTube channel to to do that. The, yeah, rough. I mean, well, I mean, this should be on the YouTube, I feel. But yeah. F1 TV has the race in 30. Um, so they do a oh. cut down of it's not highlights. It is a condensed race, uh, 30 minutes. Um, I think for me, it's still a little bit maybe over condensed. Um, but like we're huge nerds. Like we like kind of depend on the entire, like seeing the entire rhythm of the race, but like the 30 minute cut down, uh, it's a bit like watching those condensed hockey games where it's like just a lot of the, the you know, fat is trimmed off, uh, the stoppages. Um, so that's probably what you're looking for, but that's a premium feature now. Uh, so I think it would be nice if that existed on their YouTube channel, but it depends. Like if you're already, in the F1 ecosystem and you're maybe you're watching on F1 TV, the race in 30 features probably exactly what you're looking for. Um, mm. But if you're not like, yeah, like in terms of free options, I think you run into the problem that, that Drew's alluded to, which is they, they kind of F1 wants you to pay um, as, as every league does. I think Indy also does. And this is on their YouTube channel. They will do a like a race in 30 where they basically just like excise Those any yellow good. flags um that's i think if you're if you're looking to get an indie car maybe check that out first before you try to muscle your way through a commercial laden uh live broadcast or even like the on-demand like if you have nbc sports network like on the apple tv app or whatever there it's one of those apps that it forces you to watch commercials uh even though it's um oh dude like i tried out peacock because i was like i had a feeling that hey maybe this will be the future of what nbc sports is going to be and it sucks i hate it yeah um i i will say though for race recaps uh not in video form but if you want to read like a really good text write-up sometimes that's a really good way to like i could see reading a um a text write-up and then watching the highlights to kind of see like oh what did that actually look like um motorsport magazine online um has really good race recaps sometimes i'll go to that um, you know, after a race to see if I missed anything or to get like clarity on why certain things happened. Uh, they do a really good job. So I think that's just motorsportmagazine.com. Uh, Rob, you want to take this next one from Jeremiah? Sure. Jeremiah writes, hi guys. I love the podcast. I think you're doing a brilliant job. Your preseason primary was primer was super informative and brought me up to speed really well. So cheers for doing that. Could I ask two questions though? First, are the drivers allowed to practice in the car between weekends? Being Australian, my man is Danny Rick, and I've heard a lot of talk that his slow start to the year has been due to him needing time behind the wheel. Are McLaren not allowed to send him around a practice track midweek to get his laps up and more familiar with the car? Second, and a little more tongue-in-cheek, what is the go... 
what is the go with paying pay drivers like Stroll and Mazepin? They're only there because their fathers pay the team to give them a drive. So does the team then in turn hand some money back to the driver? Or does dad give an allowance and no money changes hands between the team and driver? This has kind of intrigued me for a while now. Thanks again for a great podcast. Uh, so to the first question, um, practice time in a car is a precious commodity. Um, you will occasionally get the teams agreeing to offer like, or FIA and the teams offering like dispensation, uh, to help someone get up to speed or do some like emergency testing, uh, for some kind of purpose. But in general, the amount of running teams are allowed to do is really tightly controlled, uh, with their current car models. And part of that is because these things are a little bit like fighter aircraft, uh, like running time is really expensive. Um, and so there's always advantage to, to getting more of it. But this was one of like the first cost control measures that was introduced in F1. And it's one of the most enduring, uh, is keeping these, uh, amounts of, of testing days and practice days down. Um, and the other thing is that anytime a car is on track, I think people are less worried about the drivers getting experience. Like I think I think people will be happy to let drivers get up to speed on on that. The issue is the minute a car hits the track, all the engineers are going to be there with their telemetry and like getting more running time and more more live data. And so again, it just becomes like a car on track is a way for the inequalities in F1 to propagate uh, as teams with greater resources can do more of it and pull more useful data to cement their advantage. So no, um, they're, they're pretty tightly controlled in terms of when they get to uh, get running. And that's why some of this uh, sprint race stuff was really contested because it, was cutting into just pure like testing time uh, at these, at these various circuits. Um, the other thing, I don't know for sure about whether or not like the rich kids actually get paid. I assume that yes, they, they do because I don't see any people's feelings are fragile. And I suspect uh, <laughs> like rich, rich fail sons, or maybe not fail sons, but uh, rich heirs' uh, feelings are probably also uh, fairly fragile. And so a lot of these guys, part of what they're there is for this like pretense of um, like belonging there. And so they're gonna, I suspect they're gonna get paid. Uh, they're gonna get paid like <laughs> regular drivers. Um, you're not allowed to, like, it's not. Imagine the dynamic at like, um, gosh, uh, who's the guy we like? Uh, Stroll. Um, <laughs> we, we like him now because he's not Mazepin. Uh, uh-huh. But imagine the dynamic if like the entire thing every week he goes to collect his money and the team is like, we are paying you shit. You're only here because your dad's <laughs> paying for you to be here. Uh, so go talk to him for the money. Uh, so my suspicion is it's a roundabout way to give these kids an allowance. Yeah, I mean, there's probably some like business reason also to have a paycheck going to your driver. It's probably just easier that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, lastly here, this one from Tohir. Tohir says, gents, all the love. As always, no F1 season is complete without this podcast. Thank you very much. Um, have you seen this tour of Mercedes's factory from the ultrasound and x-ray stations for the carbon fiber to the seven post simulator to test every part? That place looks like a Willy Wonka factory 
and I want a golden ticket. Jokes aside, I think this video gives a good overview of why the sport is so expensive and what it takes to win a championship off the track. Uh, this is a really cool video. Again, Mercedes um, does a really good job on their F1 YouTube channel. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like for the same reason that I enjoy hearing um, the cars fire up and seeing mechanics in the garages like with an like a wrench like that is it's it feels almost strange to me because the cars are the they occupied this space in my head that's like next to like a spaceship or something or like they're they're grown or something like they don't they almost don't register as something that someone builds um maybe it's just me but like seeing them putting stuff together in this video and like how they actually test them and like all their milling machines and stuff. It kind of, I don't know, it, it, it illuminates a little more of the, the whole process here that I really found, um, uh, interesting. So yeah, thanks to here. We'll certainly link that in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, I can now see pretty starkly where, and they like, this is pretty tightly controlled stuff. Like it's, it's no wonder that we don't see a lot of looks into this. And there are, I think there are other like factory tours from Red Bull and stuff, but, um, it's nice to see one, uh, in, in, you know, uh, for, for this year drive to survive but, and the Williams documentary also gave us a lot of access to the, uh, Williams factory in the Claire Williams days. And like the weird thing is that place seems pretty advanced but then you look at the mercedes facility and it's like oh uh one department one room in mercedes feels like comparable size to like the entire williams factory um and so like yeah it just it does highlight uh the amount of resources these these huge firms bring to bear and you know probably this is not the only place that f1 r&d is happening uh for mercedes yeah, <laughs> they say something like um, they're the only entity outside of Stuttgart to be allowed to paint the three pointed Mercedes star and that it has like I thought it was just silver, but there's like six different colors in there somewhere and it takes them it used to take them two hours to paint one because I guess there's some recipe for how you have to paint that thing. But you know, with our advances, we've gotten it down to 30 minutes. Like, you don't just print Incredible. a sticker and slap it on there? Incredible. This is like when um, there was that Samsung ad, I want to say, where they were basically like, it was like a 15-minute trailer for a black phone. Um, and they were like, but it couldn't <laughs> just be black. It had to be blacker than night. As black as pitch. Uh, and like, just... Like one of the, it's just an absurdly overproduced video for what was itself an absurdly overproduced object. That's kind of how that <laughs> reads. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks to here. And thank you to everybody who wrote in. You can also hit us up on Twitter at shift F one podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. That is us around the internet. Now let's take it around the world. Uh, we've got a number of different racing series happening this weekend. The World Rally Championship is in Portugal for the Rally de Portugal. Uh, Formula 2 will be supporting F1 in Monaco, which is very exciting. <clears throat> That's got to be a trial by fire for those guys. Uh, the World Superbike Championship is at Motorland Aragon for two races. 
The Camping World Trucks and Friends are at the Circuit of the Americas. Uh, the trucks are racing the Toyota Tundra 225. The Xfinity Series uh, is racing the Pit Boss 250. Um, and NASCAR. Yes. They're also at Circuit of the Americas. You know they got right turns there? My God. Everything uh, is has the right turns in Texas. I think is how they say that. Uh, they're racing the Echo Park Texas Grand Prix. Echo, Echo Park, Park, like the place in LA. Uh, it's uh, it's Camel Case. Okay, so uh, probably not. Well, I'm sure there's lots unless of Echo got, Parks. Unless we got Camel Cases in our place names now, because it's uh, 2021. Yes, and then Formula One kicks off, as always with Monaco, on Thursday, which um, I finally dug into this. I always thought it was just because it was a holdover because the the royalty wanted, like, they all went shopping on Fridays. Uh, there's a little more nuance to that. I picked up a, um, a link here from uh, reddit.com, so... Uh, but it is quoting something else. It's quoting ertonsenna.com.br. So take this one with a grain of salt. Um, the race's date is chosen according to a Christian holiday, the weekend of Ascension Day. Since Thursday was a holiday, uh, it was easier to block the city's traffic since the circuit takes place um, on practi- practically the whole area of the principality. Then on Friday, the track was free for tourists to wander. Some say that the royal family also wanted to have a day of rest so they could better enjoy the Thursday night activities. Um, so it is, I, I guess it is a holdover. It's just another piece of tradition. But I think that is originally why uh, why it started. Congrats to the royal um, family of, of uh, Monaco. Just sort of uh, flying under the radar of nationalism <laughs> and modern Europe. It's so weird when I hear the 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 Prince of Monaco speak because he's got an American accent. <laughs> there was a story going around that there? like one of the last um, like members of the Piedmont Sardinia uh, like royal line um, is like a TikTok influencer now or something like that. Oh and gosh! It's just yeah. What's what's uh, what's Ferdinand Habsburg up to? Yeah, where's, what, where's where he racing? He? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen him in a while. I think he's, was he doing endurance stuff? Last I saw, he was in uh, like a Land Rover or something doing donuts around the Lippenzahner Stallion. Right, right. He I was think doing is, donuts with a car, and then the Lippenzahner uh, Stallions were like surrounding him, and it was not a great, it was not a good scene. But like really on brand, yeah. I think, for whatever, <laughs> whatever his brand is. Anyway, Thursday... 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time is Free Practice 1 on ESPN2, if you'd like to watch that. Same day, at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, Free Practice 2 on ESPNU. Uh, and then we jump to Saturday at 6 a.m. for free, free Practice 3, also on ESPN2, followed by qualifying at 9 a.m. Eastern uh, on the same channel, ESPN2. And the Sunday race, everybody, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2, the deuce. And that'll be Monaco. So from Habsburg's Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. 
not a lot of great racing results across a lot of different series, but honestly, seems to be having the time of his life. Good. Good for him. What's the most recent thing he's raced in? Uh, so he's racing endurance cars this year. And okay. uh, so he was uh, he's doing European and Asian uh, Le Mans. And he's also doing. Uh, yeah. So it looks like he's driving uh, like the LMP2 category, basically a lot. Um, okay. And he won a race lately. Yeah. Wow. Way to go. For Ferd Fred. What do you think they call him? Ferdinand? Your Highness? Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if he still like tries to go with the honors and titles. I would hope not. It seems like it would be kind of whack. I remember when we discovered him, we read his entire name and it took like a half hour. Yeah. Well, that's how you got to you got to show your your legitimacy by all those family names. Uh all right. Well, this podcast is legit. It's legit enough to quit. We're at the end of our episode. Um, yeah, look forward to. I got. I got to whip up our our race times graphic and post it a day early. I guess. Um, so, like, well, you just heard all the info, but be on the lookout for that. I guess. Um, yeah, and then again, yeah, look for our patron exclusive bonus episode on Drive to Survive uh, this month. I think it'll probably be a little later once Danny is back. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to, well, I'll get your your final thoughts on uh, the upcoming race in Monaco, Rob. Um, I am hoping, as always, for a more interesting race than I anticipate. Um, yes, <laughs> I, I think we've we've had some good strategy races this year. Probably we may see one again. Um, I also would not mind it if somebody tried to get real gutsy with it. And yes, they will look like an ass uh, when it goes bad, but uh, I'm here for it and so will I be. Uh, if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes, you can do so over at patreon.com slash shiftf1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. <laughs>